Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today in the podcast, we feature part two of my For the Church 2018 message, The Church Prophetic. Last week was part one. This is part two. Thanks for tuning in. Friends, there's nothing left to preserve. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall see him as he is. The ministry of truth, prophetic ministry, is an opportunity to test regularly just how dispensable we are. Like John, we put ourselves on the line because this whole divine business we have entered is not about us. It is about God, his greatness, his majesty, his worthiness over all. I think of the words of beautiful eulogy. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the son of man. Worthy is the one who takes the scrolls from his holy hand, where angels and elders and living creatures all fall and worship the highest king, the most worthy one of all. God is worthy. God is worth it all. That's what we're confessing. That's what we're displaying in our own frail body. Third, our prophetic witness as the church will put us in direct conflict with Satan. Telling the truth does not get in the way of Christian witness. Telling the truth in every dimension of life is Christian witness. Sometimes we think about this, right? You're familiar with this language? I'm going to mess up my witness if I say truth, if I speak truth in this area where this unbeliever who I've been trying to love and and cultivate a relationship with, if I speak truth in this area where they're sinning, I'm going to what? Mess up my witness. May I repeat myself? Telling the truth doesn't get in the way of Christian witness. Telling the truth in love is Christian witness. That's it. That's what the relationship is for. That's why you're going to coffee. That's why you eat pizza together and watch the NFL, or if you're especially evolved, the NBA. Joke, joke. (laughs) That's what you're doing. That's why you're trying to be a friend. That's why you're trying to build bridges. That's why you're trying to make connections. That's why you're trying to contextualize whatever term you use. It's so that you can tell the truth. John the Baptist didn't get it wrong. He didn't blow up his witness. Because he, oh, the truth just, he couldn't contain himself, and he spoke the truth, and he messed it up. John the Baptist did what he was supposed to do. He had one job, and he did it. You have one job, do it. Tell the truth. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Now, there's no prophetic office today, but there is a tremendous need for courageous Christianity. Let's think about a few issues here where this comes into play. On marriage, we need to tell the truth today in the pulpit and in the public square. One man, one woman for life. Children desperately need a father and a mother. Wanna talk about a justice issue? There's one. Children desperately need a father and a mother to flourish. They need it more than they know. They need it more than fathers and mothers know. Americans need to stop falling out of love with one another. They need to remember that marriage is a covenant. 
Believers need to, to preach and show that marriage is about something more than a feeling. Feelings are great. God made them for his glory so that we would surge with passion for him. But that's not the bedrock of a Christian marriage, and that's not the bedrock of marriage in general. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage points to the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church, the ultimate covenant. On racial unity, we need to unfold the riches of Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. God making one new man for himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's only one substance in the cosmos that can overcome natural, racial, and ethnic, ethnic enmity, and it is the blood of Christ. That is the only force in the cosmos that can overcome racial and ethnic division. Racial and ethnic division is a terrible reality because of Adam's actual historical fall. It's in every human heart. We understand why it bubbles up. We see it in every human culture. We see it in the ashes of certain parts of the American past. We have profound historical realities to grapple with. We recognize this as Americans in the 21st century. We recognize 20th century Jim Crow law was a reality and lynchings occurred in this country. Do we have profound disunity to sort through today? Yes, we do. But we have the one force in the cosmos that can overcome it. And, and it's not up to us, by the way. It's not up to you and me to piece together the one new man. Well, you know, let's get together and let's really try to bring this one new man thing into play. No, Jesus did it. Jesus already made Jew and Gentile who were in a place of terrible division in the first century, bitter division, and he brought them together in the church. And that coming together is prophetic. This is not easy. This is not microwavable. There is room for listening and humility on all sides. Let that be said. But we cannot, brothers and sisters, we cannot make ourselves de-gospelized on the racial issue as if we have nothing to say, nothing to believe, and no hope. We have the one hope the cosmos needs to bring all people together in Christ. Christ making one new man by his blood and his redemption of his church. On sexual identity, we need to unfold the glory of regeneration. We must make clear today that our identity is in Christ, not the sum of our lusts or our natural proclivities. There's no biblical support for gay Christianity. There are good-hearted people out there who call themselves gay Christians, and I understand that, and I consult their arguments, and there are different points at which I can learn from them and appreciate them, but there is no biblical support for gay Christianity. There is no biblical support for transgender Christianity. It is not compassionate to embrace or to lead people in ministry to embrace either identity. It is compassionate to lead people, as the Apostle Paul did, out of a fallen identity, whatever it may be. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, the Corinthian church, the church 
in the wildest part of the Greco-Roman Empire, a pagan empire. Ancient Corinth puts Manhattan and San Francisco to shame. And there were people who embraced a fallen lifestyle of every kind in ancient Corinth. And what does Paul say to them, including to both parties in a homosexual relationship? Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Not just behavior. It's right for gay Christians to say they have broken with that behavior. But it's not just a matter of behavior, friends. It's a matter of identity. You cannot lose sight of your identity in Christ. You do not marry your fallen proclivities to your identity in Christ when you come to faith in Jesus. You let that go. That is the past. That is the old man. That is what was killing you. That is literally what was putting you to death. Not just physical death, not just earthly death, eternal damnation. You run from your past sinful fallen identities. You do not cling to them. On abortion, we must never stop speaking up for the defenseless. You hear that younger evangelicals feel like this is just one issue among many, and they've lost some of the steam for the pro-life issue. And I will be one humble voice in the wind saying, young evangelicals, my fellow young evangelicals, we cannot lose sight of the pro-life cause. This is not about playing politics. This is not about Washington, D.C. This is about image bearers made in his own likeness being slaughtered to the tune of 60 million babies in first century America. Children with Down syndrome increasingly do not exist. Children born with that condition because of abortion. We cannot stop being prophetic on this issue. On politics, we have to continually strive to find our identity and being God's people, but also love our neighbor through meaningful involvement. Let's be prophetic in political matters by remaining united in Christ, even if we disagree over some issues and some matters. That will be prophetic for the church to show that its unity is in something greater than a party will be prophetic. Younger evangelicals are in danger of being so apolitical and so against the established order that we end up being political. Let us be Christocentric. Let us find our identity afresh in Jesus Christ. Let's have political convictions. Let's build out Christian worldviews. I have convictions. I have thoughts. I have stances to take, but I am not going to put those over my faith in Christ, my unity with fellow believers who are born again in the name of Jesus, even though we will disagree on some things. On religious liberty, let's continually contend for the dignity of all human beings and the right of all people to believe as they wish. Let the light not die out in this area. I'm thankful for some I see here Mike and John Whitehead and others who contend even in our own area for these things. This kind of prophetic witness is going to put us, mark this, in direct conflict with Satan. This is what John did. He entered into Satan's territory. John spoke into a world ruled by sin. He dared to challenge it. He dared to bring the light of God's truth into the darkness. And that is why he was hated. It wasn't because he got his PR wrong. It wasn't because the apostles fumbled when it came to their public presentation of the faith. It's because the darkness 
hates the light. It's true in the 21st century as it is in the first. John the Baptist was beheaded not because he foretold Jesus the Messiah. You'd think he'd die because of exclusivism in the name of Jesus. John the Baptist died because of his theology of marriage. Can I ask you a question? Are you ready to die because of your theology of marriage? Are you prepared for that? Is that what you're thinking? I'm not necessarily thinking that on a day-to-day basis. I'm ready to contend. I don't necessarily think I'm ready to die for that, but we must be. John was. John did. John didn't get it wrong. We're not merely trying to engage our culture. We are entering into war with the devil in telling the truth in every dimension of life. He thinks he rules this world. He thinks this world is his. He thinks he has dominion of the creation. Satan does not have dominion of this world. This is God's world. Jesus reclaimed this world for himself by his death and his resurrection from the grave. Let's live accordingly. I read a story in Bob Woodward's book about Trump. You may have heard of Trump. Uh, about um, General Mattis, who's in charge of uh, the strategy a few, few years back with ISIS. ISIS, remember them? Which were populating social media and the internet with videos of beheaded people a few years ago, one after another, seemingly uncontrollable. Uh, One American leader a few years back saying, we have no strategy for dealing with this group not too long ago. I I don't know much about General Mattis, so I don't speak to all of his life and character, but uh, when Trump came to him and said, how should we deal with ISIS? Mattis said, to this point in time, we have an attrition strategy a management strategy, contain ISIS. You see the point? What we need is an annihilation strategy. And that is what Mattis drew up, and that is why there are not more videos of ISIS beheading people today, because ISIS was annihilated. This is true for us as well, whatever you think of that decision politically. There is no containment strategy for the devil. There is no containment strategy for the kingdom of darkness. You either go to war against Satan or you accept his terms. Let us return to the old ways. Let us tell the truth. Let us be ready to take ground from the devil and to take men alive, Luke 5.10. It's not fishers of men. If you look at the Greek, it's take men alive. Thank you, Dr. Johnston. Let's do this by the grace of God as gospel witness pushes into all the world. We're here to glorify God by speaking the truth. You glorify God when you speak the truth. Let's also secondarily love our enemy, love our neighbor, love fellow disciples, and remember that the truth is what they need. Fourth, the prophetic church often turns upon one man, one Christian. Look at the example of John. In his example, we see a single person who dared to defy a very powerful Roman figure. This is true of prophetic witness in many cases and times in history. As you tell the truth about abortion, racial unity in Christ, human flourishing, holy sexual identity, and a host of other issues, do not expect many to show up alongside you in your community, in your neighborhood, even in your church. Many today want to be a prophet. Many today call themselves a prophet but few know how lonely true prophetic ministry is. Look at John. Look throughout the Bible. Again, many want to be a prophetic witness, 
They read books about the Reformation. Tell the truth like Luther, Calvin, me, Contramundum. But then you get out there and it's lonely. It's lonely. It's windy. It's cold. You're alone. We need to go back to Scripture. Look at Joseph in Egypt. Look at Esther in Persia. Look at Daniel in Babylon. Was it easy to be a witness unto God in these places? Quick answer, no. Friends, it's hard to speak truth. It's not easy. 21st century Christians, let me welcome you to Babylon. Let me welcome you to Persia. Let me welcome you to Egypt. It's tough in this secularizing, though strangely spiritual, time to speak the truth. It's tough to do it. Everybody is glad, eager even, to preach the sermon about amazing grace. You you throw that out to a bunch of young wannabe preachers, you get a bunch of volunteers. Praise God for that. Would that we would have more. Far fewer are willing to preach the sermon about divine wrath. There are evangelical seminaries now, names you know, where there are leading professors who are denying the doctrine that Christ absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross in our place. So, it's lonely. Many will speak about the cross of Christ. Far fewer will promote substitutionary atonement. Many will say they love the Bible. Far fewer will defend biblical inerrancy. (laughs) Many will say they love your preaching. Far fewer will thank you when you challenge their pet sins. Resolve to believe this, friends, especially pastors and elders. Prophetic ministry is often going to be lonely. Knowing this, take all the more time to get equipped for this ministry, the ministry of truth. We need to be like ship captains of old. We need to lash ourselves to the mast of God's word. Get equipped. Go deep. Know what you believe. Then you are lashed to the mast, and you can withstand the raging storm. Fifth and finally, rounding the corner to home. The prophetic church is the suffering church. And the suffering church is the invisible church. Invincible church. Different doctrine. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, kind of true, but... uh, We hear a good bit today about denominational decline. In the SPC, numbers are down, baptisms are down, people are discouraged. And some of us are honestly starting to wonder, does the church have a future? Does the SBC have a future? Should I invest? I'm a, young, I'm a young gun. Should I invest in the SBC? Is this worthwhile? Should I stay in this? I have one life. What on earth is the plan? What is the plan for days ahead? Here, my friends, is the plan. The plan is not to manage our decline. The plan is not to accept our defeat. The plan is not to reduce our conception of the magnificent grace of God. The plan is not to downsize our expectations for the gospel, the invincible gospel of Christ. Here's the plan. We're going to strap in, put our big boy pants on, and go to war against the devil once more. The plan is to tell the truth. The plan is to believe in an awesome, holy, sovereign, ruling God. The plan is to build families. The plan is to train and love our children. How prophetic is that? To actually love your children, to not be on your phone all the time, but actually train them, discipline them, and love them. Very prophetic. 
The plan is to evangelize continually. The plan is to take our churches, your church, deep in Bible and theology and to make true disciples, not numbers, true disciples. The plan is to fan the fire of gospel witness into a flame. The plan is to raise up an army of young men and send them out to shepherd, teach, train, love, care for, and lead congregations. The plan is to summon afresh a vast force of men and women to be missionaries, counselors, and ministry workers of all kinds and send them out into all the world with the one power the gates of hell cannot stand against, the gospel of grace. The plan is to be the church. For all our talk about speaking up and figuring out issues, remember that the church is prophetic. Our theology is prophetic. Caesar is not God. No man, no person is worthy of worship. That is a prophetic conviction. The church, honestly, doesn't have to do that much to be prophetic. It simply has to be the church. Friends, God is not dead. The gospel has not burnt out. Jesus has not lost his fastball. Rise up, church of God. The plan is not to contain the devil. The plan is to shame the devil by courageous faith and otherworldly confidence in God. We need to conclude. Thomas Cranmer wavered. He wavered. He recanted the truth. He recanted his Protestant convictions when he saw Ridley and Latimer burned in the fires. But Mary, surprisingly, did not lift his sentence. He, he thought she was going to. His life was going to endure. But no, Mary had blood on her mind. So the hour approached, the hour of his execution. He was due to be burned. And on that day, something happened in Thomas Cranmer. Something woke up. He recanted his recantation. He embraced Protestant theology, your theology, my theology, gospel theology, once more. You know what he did? When he was led to the fire, he put his writing hand, the hand that had signed his recantation, in the fire first as a sign and a symbol that he fully recanted his recantation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you will lift your eyes, you can almost see Cranmer. Look up. Look up in the sky. Cranmer is waiting for us. There's a whole host of faithful witnesses, prophetic witnesses. Blandina, a servant girl in the second century. Perpetua. Jan Hus, the Anabaptist martyrs slaughtered by their own fellow believers. There's Jim Elliott. There are Christians from the Middle East, from Africa, from Latin America, from Russia, from China, from every tribe and tongue. The martyrs are gathering, friends. Look up. There's John. And look higher still. Robed in glory, nail marks in his hands, there is Jesus the Christ. <laughs> Praise God. Jesus is coming soon. He is coming soon for us. He is coming for martyrs to come. Until he does, tell the truth. God bless you. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. 
And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.